Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the final word cricket podcast with me, Adam Collins, and Jeff down the Zoom line. Lemon, uh, hello, Jeff. It's uh, a U.S. presidential election day as we record this, which well, it'll be fateful one way or the other, I'm sure. And let's hope it isn't um, too bonkers on the way through. Although I'm sure it will be. How are you taking all that in? It is 3.47am in San Francisco and it is 6.47am in New York City. Mm. So one way or another, um, well, who knows how long it's going to take for all these things to unfold. But I'm generally in a state of dread combined with anticipation that like, God, hopefully it's not awful, but it probably will be one way or another. I cannot imagine how much worse it feels for the people who are actually living there and whose um, lives potentially hinge on the outcome of this. It's going to be very, very grim. And all of the people who are saying like, oh, it doesn't really matter anyway. Well, (laughs) it's nice to be you because it matters for a lot of people. Yeah, dread and uh, anticipation, I suppose, uh, and just feeling awful. I'm used to that on election day. <laughs> Many mm. elections, used to all of these feelings of anxiety that, that, that bob up. But never do I think that if the election goes the wrong way that the very state of democracy in the country that I live in <laughs> could be under threat. But I suppose with the, the talk that... Uh, well, not the talk, that the stories that Trump's team have briefed out in recent days about the way they'll approach an election loss is fairly harrowing really anyway i suppose we we shouldn't get too far down that wormhole but we'll be watching very closely i'm sure a lot of people uh, from our final word community will be talking as well up to us on the patrons which is always fun about a bit of politics we enjoy that back and forth and on twitter and so on so yes it seems strange that by the time this podcast goes out there probably won't be a result unless it's emphatic one way or the other but we will be a lot further down that process there's other 
world affairs to deal with as well, I suppose, before we get too far into the cricket, which will include, I should add, uh, a conversation with Ebony Rainford-Brent and another excellent interview. We did one at the start of 2020 before lockdown and we thought it was the right time to get her back on the show to talk about not only the ACE program, which has expanded in its remit over the last week, but also her remarkable 2020. It's the only word to use to describe it, really. She's just been everywhere and doing such great things, so we thought it was the right time to get her back. But, Jeff, we are going back into lockdown in the UK for a 28-day mandatory period. You've just come out of it, not you personally, but a lot of people from our home city of Melbourne have just come out the other end of this. Uh, it, like it's, We know that many people uh, who listen to the show will be about to endure this for the second time around, and it's no fun. It's going to be extremely grim for a lot of people who are starting off, and, and I think at the other end of it, there are people who in, in Australia who are coming out the other side of it and it's not all roses and sunshine when you come out it, it, when your mental health has been thrown off over those last few months it you, you don't really ne- know how to adjust necessarily and mm. I I thought I'd mention it on the show because it's something that I deal with personally I, I've got clinical depression which basically means that it's the kind of depression that's not really related to external events you know you can get depressed when specific bad things happen or but if you're clinically depressed it's like you can feel like despair and dejection just all the time or just some of the time or when things are going well or or whatever it might be and I thought I would mention it on the show purely because I think so many people are going through difficult times we've had a lot of messages from people who are who are turning to the company of people like us online and finding some sort of uh, relief in that but I think there are a lot of people who are uh, doing a lot worse than that and I I guess you know maybe there's not a great deal of point saying this on this show but maybe there is one of the things about depression is that you always feel like you're doing it completely on your own it, it makes you withdraw from other people it makes you pull away it makes you reluctant to communicate and so it's not necessarily a thing where you can say you know oh, we're going through it with you and we're all in this together but sometimes it is useful just to know that other people are experiencing this thing that it's not just you um, that it is widespread so I thought I would say that in case that is of use to anyone. You know, I go through it, you hear me on the show being cheerful week in, week out, and I am cheerful some of the time, but that doesn't mean that that dread and despair isn't there at other points in time. And it doesn't doesn't go away uh, necessarily. It, It just is more intense and less intense the way that things go on. So if if you are struggling with that out there, at least know that there are others who are doing the same and if you want to drop us a line and say that you're feeling like shit you can do that you know we're we're not a a crisis service who can talk you down off the ledge but if you need to tell someone that you're not feeling good then it might as well be us and you know if you're dealing with people in your life who've got those problems you know in your family or, or your friends there might be people who've withdrawn from you and you think that they don't want to communicate with you but really it's just that they don't really know how to so there's no easy fix for anybody but if you can just try to make easy opportunities for people to have some company without needing to necessarily put a lot of emotional effort into it you know that's the sort of thing that might help don't necessarily stop reaching out to people just because they haven't responded to you and 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 try to be patient and understand that what happens in people's heads is can be a very difficult and weird thing
Yeah, and it has been encouraging at times when people have written to us, long-term listeners to the podcast, even people we haven't had much of a relationship with online and, and said that uh, they wanted to talk to us or wanted to convey uh, how tough it's been, especially this year, not necessarily linking it to our show, but feeling as though it was a, a comfortable place to express those feelings. So if you are uh, if you want to do that, then that's, uh, um, the, the, yeah, as, as you point out, Jeff. Uh, we're always happy to communicate and obviously a lot of people will be feeling that acute pressure this week due to the two things we mentioned before who knows what's going on in the states and and we do know that it's going to be another rough time in the uk we are putting on another live show that isn't directly linked uh, one to the next but uh, i know during the first lockdown when we had our Flem- Damien Fleming uh, live show that a number of people said to us that that was the only real social interaction they had during that particular week, people living on their own and so on. So if you are in the UK, it's going to be at 9 o'clock in the morning on the 12th of November, 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time, I think is how we describe it, isn't it, Jeff? That's it. Uh, so um, that's uh, Stuart McGill in conversation with Jeff and I on Zoom. Uh, for our patrons, uh, of course, um, well, free of charge, so to speak. I mean, obviously, we know that everyone on Patreon is making a financial contribution to the show already, but my point there is that Jeff will simply send you out a link uh, on, on the evening of the show and you can log on in a fairly straightforward way. Uh, if you're not a patron or you, you don't feel like becoming a patron, that's totally cool as well. In the show notes today, you'll see a link to a one-off ticket that you you can buy. Actually, I I should mention uh, off the top that we are, as part of this, launching very, very belatedly our final word social media accounts. Now, (laughs) this is something that we have talked about uh, for as long as we've known each other, certainly as long as we've been podcasting, whether we should have a a final word uh, sort of uh, presence on on some of the platforms. We've always sort of... uh, just been a little bit away from taking the plunge because we have our own social media accounts that we deal with and and they can be quite time consuming and adding something more to that wasn't necessarily on our agenda but we realized that through instagram and facebook perhaps instagram for perhaps our younger listeners and facebook for those who aren't as young that's where a lot of people communicate and we want to be part of that conversation so we are going to post a nice dank meme um, to um, encourage (laughs) you to join our conversation with Stuart mcgill and in turn if you're able to like and share and follow and do all those usual things that will be where jeff we post updates not just about cricket in general i don't expect that you'll see us uh, swinging at every pitch in that respect but you will see uh, updates from us where we're doing our thing when we're working what we're seeing when we're at grounds and so on rather than bombarding our own twitter feeds and, and instagram feeds with that we'll probably tend more to put that on the final word stuff going forward <laughs> Well, considering I, I, you could never say that I've bombarded my own Instagram. I think I've posted about three times on it. Um, so, look, we'll, we'll be honest. We'll post on these things when we remember and when there's something worth putting up and when yeah. we can be bothered. But uh, there won't. There, there is a final word Twitter, but we, which we never use. It's just there so that people know that we don't have one that they can't find. But there, there, there will be the Instagram and the Facebook and whatevs. So, I don't know. You, you got to do it, don't you? You got to get in the pond. Um, and I like so. that we're going to Facebook as well. Just when I mean, Facebook now is principally a cesspit uh, for sharing of 
uh, news that's fraudulent uh, in election Conspiracy periods. theory memes. Conspiracy theories. And, you know, Pete the Evans, anti-vaxxer yeah, yeah, videos. Right. The we're thinking of going anti-vax, concern. actually. That's a, that's a shift that we're thinking of taking the final word. Um, I mean, I don't know. I haven't heard you tell any stories about Winnie having any jabs, you know, just saying. I mean, you know, like, obviously starting to shift that way. And I've actually developed uh, a microwave device that, that can cure the COVID-19 disease. Well, what you do is put your head in a microwave and then turn it on and then you don't have to worry about COVID-19 anymore. Well, at least we'll be able to add to the literature of Facebook University or WhatsApp University, as I think they call it in India, the same mm. predicament where uh, information that's transmitted through those sites tends to be rubbish. But hey, we're going to be in there too. So follow us, please. Why not? Instagram, Facebook, both of those links will also be in the show notes as always. Jeff, there is one big piece of cricket news, which Kind of broke yesterday, but was uh, was confirmed in the last hour or so. Shane Watson, at age 39, has played his final game of professional cricket. The Chennai Super Kings superstar said in a release, it really does feel like it's the right time. Now I've played my final game of cricket for my beloved CSK. He added, to think that I'm finishing my playing days as a 39-year-old after all my injury setbacks, I feel so ridiculously fortunate. And Jeff, as do we, it's been so much fun uh, following the Shane Watson story. We've had a number of conversations on the final word about the, the ebbs and flows and the way that you and I both wrote about him negatively when he was playing for Australia, but came to realise later on in his career just what an important presence he was. But yes, a, a considerable career, both as an international and domestic player and a pioneer in the short form of the game it comes to an end today. Shane Watson, the big rig at Latin name, biggest rigus. The, the so many great moments, so many Shane Watson moments. So the the one that I'm referring to there is when he got the guns out at the Lord's balcony, doing some flexing <laughs> on the TV cameras. Um, Adam and I shortly after that had a, a piece of audio equipment called the iRig, rig, um, which we decided was, <laughs> That's right. was what Shane Watson the Watto um, <laughs> yeah became called the Watto because it was, he was the big rig. Um, but he he had so many beautiful moments, and I think the thing that I grew to love about Shane Watson was the vulnerability. You know, people didn't like him because he was emotional, because he was sad when he got out, things like that. But that's that's why he was lovable. Why wouldn't you be sad? You got out. You didn't want to be out. You wanted to keep making runs. There was no more Shane Watson moment than that, that match in 2012 or so when he edges a ball to first slip and turns around to see it midair and says straight into the stump mic, oh, no, <laughs> before it was caught. You know, it was beautiful. He was he, he cared. He, he really cared. There were, I remember a one-dayer where he, he won it for, for Australia with the ball in the last over, kept them to a couple of runs against England in maybe 2014. There was Shane Watson as the um, getting onto the Cricketers Association when he was rocking up in his various boutique scarves and... Visha Hantaraja described him as the hot new professor at One Tree Hill. There were <laughs> there were so many so many Shane Watson moments that you know that made us laugh, that made us cry. And and then there were the days when he was on, when he was at his best, like when he made seventy five off thirty odd balls at the Wacker to bring up his hundred, and then skied a ball about eight, 80 meters in the air, and then stopped halfway down the pitch because he was so sad that he was about to be caught. And I think Ian Bell 
was standing in the middle of the pitch and then dropped the catch and then Shane Watson was standing right next to him as Ian Bell realised Shane Watson was standing right next to him, picked up the ball and threw down the stumps at the non-striker's <laughs> end to run him out the ball after he'd brought up his 100. But there were the days when he was on and he nobody hit it better when Shane Watson decided to go the full tonk and hit a dozen or so sixes in a one-day innings or a T20 yep. innings. He gave us yep. so many wonderful times. Thank you, Watto. Yeah, nobody hit it sweeter, did they? And, you know, there's, it's a complex story, as it would be for someone who made their, you know, who started his professional journey at the start of the century. I mean, he's been going around for 20 years and obviously made his Australian debut in, in the Canary Yellow in 2002, test debut in 2005 and, and so on. But, you know, in, in such a long career, there are so many, I suppose, inflection points and a lot of emphasis on the very last bit of his Australian career when DRS became a factor, a lot of decisions sent upstairs incorrectly and, you know, there was always this sort of sense that he'd underperformed as a test batsman because he only had four centuries to his name, averaging 35 along the way. But it always discounted his his bowling, didn't it? I mean, looking at his figures today, he took 210, 213 and 216 wickets respectively across first-class list day and T20 cricket, which I think, again... We all knew he could bowl, but that he had that consistency with the ball which complemented his batting. There's an observation that Louis Cameron sent me on WhatsApp before before he tweeted something similar. He wrote, Shane Watson is the Julia Gillard of cricketers. Unbelievable promise. Was bloody exciting when they first got a crack at the highest level. A few iffy decisions, brackets, DRS, no carbon tax promise, that swayed public opinion irreversibly against them. And then a post-top flight career that makes you realise you were a fool for ever criticising them. And I think that just sums it up superbly in that since Watson's left the international setup and you know we, we think about him as a test cricketer one day cricketer World Cup winner in 2007 World Cup winner in 2015 very different roles in those two World Cups as well I should add a, an absolute pioneer of T20 cricket both for Australia I mean the, the least professional I've ever been in a press box in a fairly competitive field come to think of it was when Watto made that uh, T20 century <laughs> against India in early uh, 2016 at the SCG and I stood up and gave him a round of applause which probably wasn't the right thing to do but I couldn't help myself but yeah he had those moments of joy that punctuated his career but yeah, as, as, I, as I'm poorly articulating here, uh, in such a long career, there are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. And to focus on one more than the other, I think, does him a disservice. He, he just was there for a long time and worked his ass off and kept reinventing himself as well. And I think that's why he was able to stick around for so long, even though he did have a body that was prone to breaking down. A couple of quick observations I will make statistically in defence of Watto for those who criticise the test batting record. He he had a an incidence of making test 50s as frequently as any other top flight batsman going around, you know, up mm. there in the Michael Clark near enough to Ricky Ponting sort of measure. Uh, didn't make that many hundreds as we know, but made a lot of scores in the 80s or 90s. So I've have made the observation before that if you took about 30 odd runs from his career and, and redistributed them, he could have had 10 or 11 hundreds and then <laughs> would people have thought about him any differently? You know, if you make one Absolutely. of 30 and naught and then put those 30 runs to top up a few of the 97s, yeah. does that, it doesn't make any quantifiable difference, but but it would make a, a difference in perception, which is kind of ridiculous. He's also got one of the very best batting records uh, in 
ODI run chases in the history of the game, averages over 50 when Australia won run chases that he was in. So there were those moments um, and, uh, you know, there were there were one-day tournaments, champions, trophies and T20 World Cups where he, he basically carried the Australian team, became the second player when he made that T20 hundred to join the very elite club of players who've made hundreds in all three formats. First member, Glenn Maxwell, of course. Second member, Shane Watson and uh, little old Davey Warner brought up the rear as the, as the third member to join that Australian club a little bit late to the party after the other two had done the groundwork. Um, so those are all Shane Watson facts. Pop them in your Shane Watson Philo facts and in the future we will look back at the era of the big rig with ever more fondness. 3,874 runs in the IPL, played in every season, took 92 wickets in that competition. He was player of the final as a 37-year-old in 2018. Of course, that incredible century, unbeaten century for CSK, uh, you know, in the first edition of the comp in 2008. And so much of that, I know it was kind of on, you know, on some television. Some seasons were on television in the middle of the night and, and whatever else. But the majority of that work happened outside of the... Uh, I guess the public consciousness in Australia and yeah, before we got to remember it's kind of before social media as well to an extent 2008 was a, a very different time online compared to what it is now in terms of the shareability of clips and just physically being able to see what he was doing which I think in a way informs why he was misunderstood and I put my hand up here and, and as of you have in the past as well Jeff I mean I wrote a number of pieces early on circa 2012 13 14 when I was first writing about cricket which was of that school of thought that this guy can't possibly continue to command a spot in the national side when on reflection that was totally wrong I was missing the bigger picture I was looking too intently at some columns and and not closely enough at at other columns and was able to form an incorrect picture of the guy and I'm glad that the last five years have enhanced his reputation and that he can retire safe in the knowledge that he has the respect of the Australian cricketing community. So the CBUS Super Performer of the Week, it's a fait accompli this week. It is Shane Robert Watson, le grand rig, as they say en français. Uh, CBUS invests directly back into the building and construction industry across Australia creating jobs for members and supporting the industry. They can't do that without big rigs. They need big rigs in the building and construction industry <laughs> and that is what Shane Watson brings. Uh, always remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. To find out if CBUS Super is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Before we go to our feature interview, we're going to bring it in early this week with Ebony uh, and we'll come back to the Sheffield Shield. We didn't even mention it in the intro. It's one of the all-time great Sheffield Shield rounds. We will discuss that. We'll also discuss the Women's Big Bash League. The Cricket Australia annual general meeting was, was was took place during the week as well. We'll come to all that at the end, though. We should just quickly finish off our conversation about the Indian Premier League, though. There's one game left in the regular season. That's today. It'll be finished by the time that we put this episode out. The Sunrisers of Hyderabad are playing the Mumbai Indians, and if Sunrisers win, uh, they'll knock KKR out of the four. Interesting, though, yesterday, Jeff, that RCB were playing Delhi, in a game where the result, before it was played, that is, there were scenarios where the game could be played in a way that would suit both teams. And that's never ideal, of course. There's that famous example from the 1982 Football World Cup with West Germany and Austria, which often gets brought up, which is an argument for having all the final round games played simultaneously so that there's no way of engineering results. Now, I'm not saying anything untoward happened yesterday. It's more just the fact that it could be alleged to have happened or that people could form this view, it doesn't help with a competition that's had issues with integrity historically. (laughs) 
euphemistic enough? <laughs> oh, as far as understatement went, that was like that was that was the the winning round of limbo. That was just <laughs> bent parallel at the knees and whispering under the bar. Um, yes, has has had a few issues with. Um, I couldn't really get my head around how the result could have suited both teams, but I'm not re- very good at maths. But because you know football draw that's obvious but i mean they couldn't really engineer a tie it was more about net run rate and right because of the way that rcbs i mean i'm not going to go into it in great depth because i'll surely make a mistake and uh, unintentionally uh, imply something that that is dodgy but basically with net run rate and where sunrises sit before today's game they could make sure that they'd be sitting in mm. second and third respectively so that right. they wouldn't be in the death spot today which kkr are in Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I see. Um, well, I, I suppose that's a, a pretty sensible idea uh, as to how to fix it, but it would never happen because if they put the games on at the same time, they can't screen them and make money <laughs> off them. So uh, that's never going to happen. Uh, but, look, for, well, th- the other very important thing to note is that David Warner is nine runs away from second spot all-time on the IPL, no, third spot all-time on the IPL run scorers list. He's eight runs behind Rohit Sharma at the moment so can he get there that's the question on Australia's lips yeah I suppose the other Australian element this week was that both Aaron Finch at RCB and Glenn Maxwell at Kings 11 uh, were left out of the side by the end of the comp so in both cases didn't quite have the campaigns they were setting out to have but that's okay they'll live to fight another day to excellent T20 cricketers they're allowed to have a bad run Jeff, I think we should, as I say, leave it there for the time being. Let's go to our conversation with Ebony Rainford-Brent and then we'll return with conversations about the Sheffield Shield and the Women's Big Bash League. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. It's The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and we are back talking to the first guest that we had on the show for a long-form interview in 2020. In January of this year, I went along and sat with Ebony Rainford-Brent in the boardroom at the Surrey County Cricket Club and we had a long conversation there at the Oval about a whole range of things uh, to do with your incredible story and life in cricket, which has only gotten more extraordinary in 2020 in so many different ways. So to begin, thanks, Ebs, for joining us again. Well, thank you for having me, Adam, Colin, and Jeff. I'm looking forward to it. As always, you guys are very good fun, so um, it's a pleasure. (laughs) Well, but I mean, obviously this year has been strange for everybody and, and, and challenging in its own in different ways, but you've really taken to that challenge, haven't you? I mean, we're going to talk about the, the program that's been expanded upon uh, in recent times, the ACE program at Surrey and, and the injection of funding and so on in a minute. But just on a personal level, I mean, you have taken to the task of being, whether it's in lockdown or coronavirus uh, implications and whatever, you've just gone after it and seen this almost, not as an opportunity, but you weren't going to sit there waiting on, on your splice at the non-strikers. <laughs> I like the way you um, put that. Uh, how do I describe it? I think my personality... Um, as from a kid till now is even when what's that well i'm going to use your surname jeff but when life throws you lemons or whatever it is make lemonade so um i've always had that mentality uh, you smiled there so i just i know i've got you thinking there jeff but i think it's just that mentality of look we know we're going to be going for a pretty crap time but equally there's always opportunity to rethink reflect um find out what's important i think that's what i've learned more so this summer is just some of the things that are really important to me through lockdown, uh, some things when it comes to my career that have been really important. I've maybe set my stall out, whether that's the sky piece or whether it's the ace. 
so yeah I've just gone all in and I wouldn't say it's easy emotionally I found this year horrendous like just ups and downs and frustrations and like everybody else uncertainty but equally overall I always hold that view that whatever we're thrown you can grow through it and find ways to improve so I think that's what this year has been for me is hopefully setting my stall out on things that are important yeah, I mean, as far as the story that you told us back in January, some parts of it were quite harrowing and people hadn't heard that tale from you before. They they saw you, I think you put it in your own words, as a happy-go-lucky figure in the cricket industry as a broadcaster and somebody who you know, had this cheery disposition. But you went to a very different place this year. You really became an activist uh, in, in every sense of the word through your writing and talking and broadcasting and campaigning, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, you've really shifted gears in 2020. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a, a weird kind of coming of age of empowerment of, um, I don't know, I've never really felt in power as such. I felt like for many years you're bumbling along, you're going with the system, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And, you know, a lot of it's worked out. And I suppose this year was the first year where I started to really get clear that you can make changes that you want to see. I maybe had the platform, the timing of the world was right. And then you start to realise your experiences can become more relevant. So the, some of the past and, you know, my growing up and challenges there will help me inform making decisions to bring people into the game who maybe come from very different worlds to what we know. So, yeah, it's kind of a... I think, and I've used the word, and I don't mind... I hope you don't mind me swearing on your podcast, but I think there's a mixture of emotions of feeling pissed off at times, uh, wanting to see things happen quicker. And then between that emotion and realising actually I'm well positioned to do something, that's kind of, I think, the gear that shifted this year. Is that an important distinction to to think that you're well positioned to do it rather than, like, do, do you also alongside that have some feeling of resentment that you have to be the one to do it? Like, why is it on you to be pushing and to be trying to force this change when other people haven't been doing it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've kind of been asked that in a few forms and... Um, yeah, I would say um, the dream, right, in life is to have an environment or structure that is exactly what you want it to be and you can go with the flow and life is a lot easier. I'm actually quite a lazy person uh, by nature, which maybe it, it doesn't look like it, but I actually am. And so th there is a bit of resentment thinking, why, why am I having to, you know, find this kind of momentum? It's not necessarily my job or my job specs or what I'm sort of written to do but equally I think the overriding emotion which is more is that frustration and also knowing by us not taking actions it's not about me it's about those doors that we can open up for other people and in some ways it would be selfish to not do something when you can and so I've had to battle with it that's how I describe it it's like an acceptance piece it's uh mm. getting my head around it deciding if i wanted to commit to it realizing if i'm being honest because i know the game quite well that it's uh it's at least a 10-year piece of work what i'm trying to work towards you know hopefully if we get systems right you know i can wind back and you know as we get more staff in and structures in but equally to shape that from something new and make it financially stable and all these sort of things it's, it's a lot of work so i've had to accept that I'm just going to get on with it and um, I'll worry about it when I've retired, I guess. In terms of laying a, a platform for that, that sort of long 
journey that you're talking about. I mean, when we had you on in, in January, it was principally to talk about the Afro-Caribbean engagement program at Surrey that I touched mm. on in the intro. I mean, obviously, the conversation went in a number of different ways, and we're glad that it did. But this week, there was a surge of enthusiasm and interest in that again. Um, in short, you've received over half a million pounds of funding from Sports England. You're now officially a charity. You've got four full-time staff. You've been appointed chair, high-profile ambassadors and patrons and all of these opportunities that have been developed there at the mm. Oval, which effectively a year ago was just an idea of yours. I mean, can you believe how quickly this has grown mm. and, and the momentum that's gone with yeah, it? Yeah, I think one thing is luck and timing right in life. And what I mean by that is I think there was a, an understanding at the start of the year when we started ACE that there was a need for the game to look at opening up to more communities. And, you know, it flirted with that with the South Asian project we were starting to flirt with the idea. And then um, Sport England released a report. So this is all early on in the year called Sport for All, which was unpicking the research, which shows that BAME communities, and then it broke it down to different communities were really not getting the opportunities. They talked about structural racism and, you know, this is coming from the top. So the timing of that was important. And then Black Lives Matter, which threw up, you know, I'm sure you guys were as the media were, were really sort of highlighting the, the challenging conversations we need to have. So I think all of that came together as a, you know, I could have tried to launch the ACE program two years ago and it might not have had the traction or the interest or the awareness, mm. but actually the timing's right now to just let's get on with this and let's try and make a difference. And look, so much credit to Sport England. I think their research, if you if you ever have a time and you're interested, go into it because it it unpicks a kind of a picture that's not just cricket. This is a sport in our country in the UK. So yeah, timing was right and then it's now turned into a bit of a roller coaster. So we're moving as fast as we can. So is the ACE program able to now be a much bigger and more ambitious program than you were imagining mm. it would be, you know, nine, ten months ago? Yeah, okay, so and this is where the acceptance piece came in, was when Sport England, we got through all the plans, spent, sent them about sort of 12 to 20 pages budgets, you know, this is a long process to get government funding, so we got right down to the crunch point, and then they pushed us and said, we think you could have a bigger impact than just London, like, you know, the model that's, the models and the ideas and stuff like that we, we put in there, they were like, we think it's going to be a waste. So, you know, fair play to them. And the chief exec pushed back and said, look, this is a lot of money. We think your plans are right. We think your intentions are right. But actually, you need to scale that for this sort of level of investment. And I think that was the turning point for me because I then realised, God, this is not just going to be in my patch of what I know. I know We know coaches in London. I know church leaders in London you know I, I know everything on that patch and so does Chevy so does Richard Gould we've kind of got that covered but to think wider but then actually that's where the excitement came in because when you start to realize actually the, the challenge is national and we're also having a lot of people inquiring that can we somehow get on board we're in different parts of the country you know the amount of people who are saying it's not that they don't want to move but they're not quite sure how or whether there's a movement to be part of. And so that was the moment, I think, when Sport England said, look, if we're going to do this, you need to you need to think wider. And the decision to go independent, which meant that we kind of not sever ties with Surrey, but we, we have a new identity. And the, you know, Birmingham's needs now become just as important or Manchester or, or wherever we decide to go to. So that's, the, that's the, the ambition. And also, look, the black community is very, very important to me. It's, you know, what I know and where I grew up. But equally, I hope that we can somehow 
push conversations around underrepresented groups full stop. I think, you know, the white working class are a community that don't get talked about enough. You know, there's different subsections, you know, in where we are in the Oval, there's a Portuguese heritage community, all these different. And I just hope that through the process of ACE, we do look at underrepresented groups and target them and support them. So I hope that there's a thinking process that um, starts to evolve as we, we grow our work. In terms of what you were able to achieve this year in a smaller scale before it wrapped up, so trials mm. for 70 boys and girls before lockdown, which resulted in 25 scholarships. One of the players that you were bringing mm. through was involved in the Surrey under-18s by the end of the season. I mean, give us a feel from having been on the tools there with the coaches, just what a difference it was uh, opening up the game to people that may not have necessarily had those opportunities before and the other part of it which is retention yeah so I think there's there's so many things that um, we took from this year and bearing in mind COVID as well was getting in the way of what we'd fully planned so it was it was kind of a restricted program but we still see saw so so much so one was the floods of interest around the trials from the community so this myth that the black community are not interested. Actually, what we found out is there's loads of people going, we've always been interested, we've just felt disconnected. I think that was the biggest piece for me of realising the interest was there. Then when we saw the participants and we weren't sure what we were going to get and thinking, you know, this might be a lot of 70 newbies, 70 cricketers who've never played before and we start them from scratch. And actually, when we saw the talent level, like we said, we had to double those scholarships nearly just in that that interest that we we already saw there were three or four that had potential to be possibly in our structure but were not in environments that were going to be pushing their performance and so they went through a number of training days training matches Um, we had an integrated match with Surrey uh, some of the Surrey age group setups as well and um, you know a a decent match program and then like we said at the back end of summer Idris is the I suppose the one that yeah, you know, he was playing club cricket, very good cricketer, came into the structure straight away, impressed, um, you know, our, our performance guys like Gareth and Tom Burns and the people who run that environment. And, they, and they, they gave him an opportunity to have a look at it and he held his own, you know, two matches. And it just starts to make me think, imagine if we caught Idris or equivalents of Idris four years ago and they'd been in a performance structure like an Ace Academy or a Surrey Academy or elsewhere. You know, we talk about this decline in cricketers. I tell you what, the talent's there. It's just that it needs that investment and system. So, yeah, we've achieved a lot, um, a lot in a short amount of time, especially in the challenges that we have. And I think that's down to passionate staff as well, like people who are behind who who want to get behind and drive this. So, yeah, what, what a summer. The fact that this came all at the end of Black mm. History Month as well, I mean, you know, you did an interview with, with Andy Bull, you did a number mm. of interviews last week, but one with Andy Bull in particular, which kind of caught fire mm. on Twitter and, and, and social media, as these things tend to do, where you didn't hold back <laughs> at all. I mean, you were very forceful about it needs to be, for all the conversations you've had about BLM this year and how important you've been in those in our sport, specifically the conversation with Michael Holding before the first test match, you are pissed off your words that cricket was the first sport to stop taking the knee, for example. You think the conversation went to a certain place and then and then petered away. Um, can you just elaborate mm-hmm. on that a bit about the frustration of having almost lit the fuse 
in cricket, only to see by the end of the year not perhaps feeling as though we'd quite gone far enough. Yeah, that's um, Andy got me on. I won't say a bad day, but he got me on a day where I think I was um, I was just letting rip. I was <laughs> I was um, <laughs> you know sometimes I'm normally happy and smiley and go lucky, and then some days you're just like, come on, guys. And uh, there's a few things to put into this because. You know, I had my, obviously, the, the, the situation with Mikey where we did the video and the response there. And, and feeling like all the pieces from the media this summer were highlighting we know we've got to make change. So it was, it was a lot of talk, but equally, some of the conversations I'm having with people, I'm thinking, well, what you're talking about is 10 years away or, you know, it's five years away. And, like, I don't know, I've got grey hairs kicking in now. I don't know about you two, but every time I see one of those, I think, how much, how long do we have to wait till we see change? I don't want to be grey when I see these things implemented. So I think that emotion was going. Mm. The other thing that um, has been really interesting for me, I did an anthropology of sport course at Goldsmith earlier in the year, just before going to the Women's World Cup. And I started unpicking the game and its roots. And, and you know, that's the whole point of how the sport was used as values of pushing the imperial kind of um, and colonial empire. And so the lady started asking me to really just look at the game a little bit deeper because of, you know, the values of what it creates. And I suppose what I was seeing is, oh, God, we just have a, you know, a beautiful game. So many things I love about it, but equally it's not set up to move quick enough to make change because it wasn't set up originally for the community. It's now got to reach out to and serve in the UK. I don't I think it's different in the the world game, but I think here in England specifically. So I I think all these emotions are just going all around. And when Andy saw me, I was just like, we just need to get moving. We just need to get moving. Um, you know, taking the knee, uh, taking a knee, sorry. And, you know, I know people are going to have mixed views about it, but I just thought, look, we've done it for a couple of games, really. And then finished it and we were the first sport in the UK to take it and stop taking it and I, I don't know you know then hearing fair enough it might be education is a focus but then I'm thinking well where's the education program and you know I know that things are moving and you know I don't want to be too critical because I I have had some really positive conversations with the powers that be I know they care and um, you know they've been supportive in coming on board with A so it's not to to throw too much frustration but I think there is a point of saying like I want to see this move quicker and that's what Andy saw was just my emotions of let's get going. Is that also to do with you mentioned earlier how hard it's been you know that it has been a year in which there's been progress made in various ways but it's it's really taxing on the people who have to push that and whether that's you or, or the other people on the, the front lines you know people like Lonsdale Skinner who've been pushing these sort of fights for a long time and and I think it's something that we can't understand from outside that as to what a toll it takes to put yourself in the breach. Does it just get to a point where you can't really be polite anymore and, and, and try to make people comfortable who need to actually take action and move and that if they are comfortable, they probably won't move. But, you know, you put, is, is there a point where you just can't... You, you, mm. what, what you're feeling has to show through in a more blunt way? Yeah, I think that's exactly it, Jeff. It's emotionally taxing is exactly the word I'd describe for this whole year. It's emotional to have an understanding of a world that, um, I would say my perspective of it, where, you know, if you've lived it and you live it day in and out and you see it happen to people you're dealing with and realising the doors are actually shut, 
and um, then you go through it. It feels like an upheaval. I don't know, but it feels like a global kind of upheaval with the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I found it very emotionally hard to the point you most probably saw the tears in the video with Mikey, which was just like a, a real... Uh, that that time, that sort of two, three week period, I was really struggling after the death of George Floyd and recording that video. And, you know, I was struggling emotionally. And then you just get to a point of, yeah, there's no point holding back anywhere. There's no point. Yeah, holding your emotions, what good is it going to do anybody? Because being polite, I suppose, and, and, and being waiting for stuff to happen isn't gonna isn't gonna um, do us any good. And so, yeah, I think it's the emotions of let's just get on with it I'll just where I am now so um you know I'm I'm lucky the one thing I would say is I'm lucky to be in a position to make a difference because if I felt this and I wasn't you know it'd be a really hard thing to accept actually that you you know you're not maybe not connected or having enough influence but at least I suppose I can move and then I know that others are connecting with me who have similar emotions of wanting to see change and that's why I think it was so well received actually is a lot of people feel the emotions that I'm feeling and want to see movement and progression. And so it's just created an opportunity for us to all come together and do that. Yeah, the fact that 6.8 million people on Twitter alone uh, saw that video, probably many, many millions more in, in other uh, parts of the internet and on the television, of course. I spoke to Brian Henderson about this, the boss of Sky Cricket, for a Wisdom column a couple of months ago, and he explained that for him, talking to you on the phone ahead of time and how emotional you were was the turning point for him. And I think that for a lot of people, seeing you and Mikey talk, that would have had a similar effect. And that must have been palpable for you when seeing the response from the cricket community and going back online. I read in one of the interviews that you've done recently that you actually stepped away. I remember I think I, I spoke to you about it separately and said, how have you gone today? And you said, I haven't looked at anything because of the you know, the torrent of notifications mm -hmm. on, on Twitter. But you, you found another way of... Um, reading it all through a separate Twitter account, just kind of how you felt then uh, that was informing the conversation and having like quite a sudden effect on, on the cricket discourse. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things to say there. First of all, um, I give so much credit to Hendo and Sky because, you know, that could have just been another team call, like a, just, in a, you know, just a chat. Yeah, we all have team meetings. But he decided to make it into something meaningful and got a good team of, you know, director and producer and then just letting me and Mikey tell it raw. And so that, you know, him saying he got it, I sensed he did. I feel there was a real authenticity through that creating of the piece of realising this could, you know, it could, if we get it across, it might have an impact. I don't think we thought it would be as big, but we thought maybe it would connect. And then the other is just cancel culture, isn't it? I, I just panicked and just thought, well, this is my first major Sky game on, you know, a men's test match when the world's been cricket starved. And if people don't like it, you know, that that could be just, you know, my career down the pan. And I just thought, well, if it is, it is. I have to deal with it. But I just kind of set myself up. I, I can't even remember what my Twitter was. I deleted it, but it was like Joe Blogs or something with no picture. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> followed all your accounts. If you saw a Joe Blogs with no picture following you, it was me. Um, <laughs> and just to kind of separate myself because I thought, I don't know, you know, and it felt like a risk. But... I had to do that. The response has been extraordinary. Um, and again, what I would say is that's connection with emotions, connecting with maybe people felt like we did or some people who, who were opening up to understanding the situation kind of got moved into the space with us. So that, that was incredible. Well, it definitely was a, a risk when you look at anybody who speaks out about things that make other people uncomfortable, you know, particularly when it might regard the failings of those other people. 
they do tend to get savage to the the majority would rather that person stops telling them about what's going wrong and and go away was it important to like to have someone of michael holding's stature that did that kind of protect you in a way that you had someone alongside if it had been you out there on your own you might have got walloped and this is sort of the way that power dynamics work is that if you have someone who's who's built up enough cred with that majority who might otherwise um, react really badly then like in some ways that seems like a a negative aspect of it that people won't necessarily be willing to listen to the message regardless of what it is they'll only be willing to listen to it if it comes from who they view as the right people i think so much of what people don't know is the impact that mikey's had on me as a human being when we had the emotional team call that i talked about um hendo let mikey was in the cayman at the time let him know that i was emotionally going through what i was going through and mikey was on the phone like straight away offering support but equally saying we need to channel and you need to learn how to channel these emotions and, and step up. And so there was that from, this is before he had arrived in the UK, so we're talking every couple of days and he's just being Mikey, do you know, that strong but solid. And I suppose, you know, you look at his career as a person and the fact that when he was pretty much as a teenager, he didn't go on the Rebel Tours, he knew his mind, he knew himself, he knew what he believed in and his values. So. I was starting to feed off that talking to him. Then when we recorded it, if like you said, I don't think I would have done if it was on my own, but then that's where we said, should we dovetail the two? And that also brought a lot of things. It brought the UK experience and someone who grew up in a, a black community where he also sort of said, I didn't have to deal with that. And what, you know, we're going through all this. And then through lockdown, obviously we were in the bubble a lot. I was talking to him about Ace and talking to him about the vision and talk, and it was him sort of just saying, come on, Ebony, you know, this is your time. And so there's no doubt, one, I don't think the piece would have resonated anywhere near as much without him um, being there. I think I could have been definitely ravaged on social media if it was just me. Um, I think the contrast in emotions allowed people to feel what they needed to feel. So if you wanted to feel how I felt, you could jump in there. Whereas if you were more on the Mikey and the education and the the clinical sort of breakdown, then you could go there. There's no doubt that I would say uh, uh, my lens of who I am has changed by being exposed to him this year. And, you know, I don't want to put too much. I texted him a couple of days ago just saying that, actually, because it's incredible to have somebody who, you know, I haven't had a huge amount. I've always seen him it, it, dotting in and out, but to have a year like this and then to see someone like him has really inspired me to step up. And so having him as a patron, he was the number, you know, one of the number ones who like, got to get Mikey because also I want to help leave a legacy for people like him, people like Roland Butcher, who did, you know, have broken milestones in the game. Denise Lewis, who the woman was, I looked up to as a kid when I didn't see other black females, mm. you know, stuff like that. So yeah, he, he's, he's changed my lens of the world. Yeah, so for Ace, you've got uh, Mikey and Roland Butcher as your patrons and your ambassadors include Mark Butcher, Alex Tudor, Sophia Dunkley, of course, playing in the England women's team at the moment, and, and Lonsdale Skinner. Sir Trevor P- MacDonald as well, legendary. Oh, yes, yes yeah, sorry. As an honorary patron. Not, not a complete list in front of me. <laughs> you talked about your impatience before, about sort of, you know, you've come this far, and understandably, you just want to keep the, keep the pressure on. When you see other sports or other walks of life in 
in England outside of our little patch, our little corner of the world in cricket. Does it make you want to sort of take the bull by the horns, as it were, there as well? Like, for example, when you see you know, quite pronounced examples of racism in football, is the temptation now for you to kind of get in there across the board or, or do you realise that given your background in the, the sport, being the first black woman to play for England and so on, that you're best just to stay where we are and work on our on our area or, or do you want to broaden that out? No, I had a, that's a really good question. I had, I've had a couple of opportunities to move into other sports in positions that got offered a, a few you know prominent opportunities and I, I declined. One, because... You know, other worlds like, say, football, I don't really understand the intricacies from bottom up at the moment. It doesn't mean I can't, you know, help with conversations. But I feel that, one, it's actually going to be hard enough doing this current job. We're trying to do something which our game really hasn't done enough in terms of reach out to certain communities and bring them, infuse them, bring them through. Um, that alone, you know, if you, if you can really understand the work that's going into it behind the scenes, that alone, I'm thinking, well, that's 10 years of, like, dedicated graft. I think we'll get there in the next two or three years in terms of laying a foundation, but that's enough. Wider than that, um, I think I can give my opinion and my um, my support and advocacy, but equally, I'd never want to go into someone else's house and tell them, you know, or... Or, or or do that. So at the moment, I think I'm focused. Who knows, in five years' time, I may have another experience mm. that changes that. But for now, I just feel cricket alone. And I'd also say to the point that, you know, I'm speaking to two Australians here, it's never passed me when I go to Australia that I don't see many Aboriginal cricketers come through. It, it, it surprises me knowing that there's talent. I watched the Adams Good do- documentary not too long ago. And so... I still feel with cricket, even if, you know, we start to see progression with Ace, you know, who knows if we don't inspire others to say, maybe you could do that in other countries. I'm not saying it's ours to go over there and tell them, but Mm. I think cricket alone has enough to keep me engaged for a long time. Um, And I, I hope we I hope it inspires thought processes in in other countries as well. Well, Ebony, you are certainly a most inspiring uh, individual, uh, really with everything that you do, but this year's been a remarkable one. As we said off the top, you've been a huge part of that. Uh, Thanks for being back with us on The Final Word. Tell us all about it. Thank you for having me, guys. Always fun. Wisden Cricket Monthly is a magazine that comes out once a month. The Night Watchman is a quarterly. That means it comes out once a quarter. One of the months in the year is December, and in that month happens... Christmas and Christmas <laughs> is a time when you need to buy people presents and both of these publications are things that you can buy at a substantial discount purely because you're listening to the final word cricket podcast in which we will tell you how to do exactly that have I set up the pins appropriately Adam I think you have Jeff I can't tell you the number of times I've arrived at December 23 or December 24 and gone, fuck, I have no idea what I'm buying X, Y, and Z, whether uh, it's a relative or otherwise. And I have eventually gone towards a publication and bought them a subscription to a magazine or a newspaper. This is exactly what Wisdom Cricket Monthly is good for because if you buy them the final word subscription, which lasts for six months, it'll cost you just £10 or 15 Australian dollars. But when they see the front of the magazine arrive in their inbox once a month, they'll see it costs a lot more than that and they won't Mm. know, they won't (laughs) know that you've got a discount. (laughs) They won't know. If you go to bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW, bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW, all in the show notes, they'll see the sticker price. They go, that's quite a, 
quite a generous gift they've bought me. They won't know you've gotten 50% off because oh. you listen to the final word. It'll That's be a great cunning. ruse. And what better time to enact that ruse than over Christmas? Buy a subscription for somebody else. <laughs> Buy it for a cricket-loving friend. We know that in 2020 there hasn't been as much cricket as before, but I would, I would wager that there has been more brilliant cricket riding this year than any other year because people have had a chance to, to step back and contemplate the loss of the game and I suppose when we have had it, the joy of it taking place. So with all that in mind, I would say no better time to get yourself a subscription to Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket mag in the world, a magazine that you and I both work for regularly. I'm going to be a, a columnist for them through the Australian summer months as I've done the last couple of years. And there's a new edition on the shelves at the moment that we talked about a couple of weeks ago looking at the best new batsman in England, an interview with Zach Crawley, who's the man of the moment, over there, we look back at the, the season that was in 2020. Shield Berry, a real sage-type character in the press box, uh, reflects on that. Phil Walker, the editor-in-chief of the magazine, considers what 2021 might look like. Michael Holding, who we were discussing then with Ebony, he sits down and talks to John Stern, another long-standing magazine man in the cricket caper, about how he stepped out of the game's usual confines in conversations about BLM and so on. And then there's Josh Whittacombe at the back of the magazine. There's the My Perfect Day at the Cricket. Always a really funny way to end it. I've just finished watching the first season of Taskmaster where Josh is one of the contestants and very, very good at it. So I am particularly inclined to say that he's a, a lovely man and, I, and this is a lovely piece of writing. So there's tons there. Isabel Westbury, dear friend of the show, she's also a columnist at the moment and she's writing about the nitty-gritty of the IPL moving to the UAE and the different pitfalls of that and the challenges and the darker side of that um, she's certainly not pulling any punches there so it's a brilliant addition at the moment but across the board Jeff it's Christmas time get on board and I like Adam your uh, tip there with the ruse because typically Christmas is all about buy presents for people who you like because you like them you're actually saying here's a way to buy presents for people you don't like and feel like you've got one over them because you'd be like, ha-ha, they think it cost more than it did. No, you should buy it for people that you like as well because they all will appreciate the power of a good deal. You know, you can tell the people that you like that it came at a discount. You can buy them two six-month subscriptions if you want because it comes at such a handsome discount. It's pretty much half price by the time you factor it all in. So, look, the link is in the notes uh, where you clicked on to listen to the show where there's text underneath that. That's where it is. It's bit.ly, WCM, as in Wisdom Cricket Monthly, and then TFW, as in the final word, if you didn't figure that out. But just click the link. Don't listen to the numbers, letters. What do they make uh, the alphabet out of? Numbers, definitely. That's what you listen to. <laughs> numbers. I, go and buy it. Let me stop talking. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast. It's the Final Word. Adam Cohen's Jeff Lemon, and it is time for... Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with people on our Patreon page where they send us a number of dollars and cents, bless their hearts, and that number relates to a cricketing number, and we have to guess what the cricketing number is. This one has been eagerly awaited for quite some time by Mel Shawley. Shawley, you can't be serious. Oh, I am serious, and stop calling me Shawley, uh, who has been anticipating her number coming up on the show. Uh, that number is $6.10, but let me 
give you a little bit of background, I'm going to read to you from a, a note that Mel sent us because she's a keen correspondent. And this is quite an interesting message. Mel said, I've gone a bit cricket history nuts recently. I moved into a weird old house and it turns out the landlord played cricket for Mumbai in the 60s. When he was showing me around, we were in the garage and I noticed all these cricket bats in bins, dozens of them. I went and had a rummage during lockdown and it was a treasure trove all signed by both teams going back to the 1930s. One was from the Lord's Test in 1946 with Merchant and Mancad signatures and then the Sydney Test in 47 with Bradman, Barnes, Lindwall, Miller as well as Hammond, Hutton, Compton, Bedser, etc. My landlord played with Vinu Mancad's son and nephew and then he gave me the 1947 Sydney bat to give to my lovely dad. I had my last rummage through the garage today as my landlord has come to collect all of his memorabilia and get someone to catalogue it all. But... Mel goes on to say she was given a display cabinet containing two bats signed by the 1997 Ashes teams. She was at Edgebaston that year watching NASA's Day in the Sun and was also at Trent Bridge when all that early hope was dashed. And she hints that looking at the names in what she considered to be her England team could help us with the direction of her nerd pledge, which to remind you was 6.10, which could be read as 61 or 610 or whatever else you want to do with it. 6.1? Yeah, great stuff, Mel. As you say, one of our uh, best correspondents. So I'm glad we're up to her number. Well, 6.10 for three is a score that India made against Bangladesh in 2007, thoroughly unrelated to the clue. But I just wanted to note that in that innings, all of India's top four batsmen made centuries. So Dinesh Kartik, Wasim Jaffa, who retired ill, then Rahul Dravid and Sachin Tendulkar. And I think I'm right in saying, Jeff, that... Uh, that's only happened a couple of times in Test cricket. Once in an Adelaide Test match that was played over Christmas in the mid-50s against the West Indies, and then I reckon a Test that we were at, possibly also against the West Indies, I want to say, maybe at the MCG in 2015, rings a bell. But anyway, it hasn't happened often where the top four have all made three figures, and it did happen when India made 6-10 for three. I didn't get too far, though, here. All I had was that Simon Jones being the 610th uh, English man, English man, Englishman, to play test cricket, uh, was near enough to the hitting zone uh, for Mel, who noted that her team was kind of the 97 England team. I know that Simon Jones starts half a generation later, but yeah, so I'm sure that's wrong, but that's as far as I got. You had a bit of a deeper dive though. There is this weirdly strong India link because India made 610 a couple of times and also Virat Kohli made 610 in a series against Sri Lanka which was a uh, it's not the the most runs in a series by an Indian batsman but it's it's well up there so but there is no India link there's this England 97 link and, and it's it's quite comical actually how little 610 has to do with a, a late 90s England team because they were shit at batting, so they never made 610 or anywhere near it. Um, it's not like there was anyone in that team who did something like take 610 wickets or or things like that. So I was thinking, okay, it's probably not the 610. We're probably looking at a 61, but it's very tangential. Here, The best that I have runs as follows. Mark Butcher played in some test matches in 1997 and took 61 catches in his test career. <laughs> 
Uh, John Crawley, who I remember making about two runs in a session in the, the Sydney Test in 2003, had 61 Test innings and played a fair bit of Test cricket in 97. Where I ended up, though, and this, this may be too tangential, but there are, there are a couple of links that sort of make it work. Graham Thorpe. Now, Mel talked about uh, being at Edgebaston when Nasser Hussain made the double hundred and how that was very nice. Graham Thorpe was down the other end, making 138 for England in that particular test at Edgebaston. Mel also talked about being at Trent Bridge when everything fell apart. At Trent Bridge, Graham Thorpe was playing a lone hand, making 53 and then 82 not out. That season, if you take the 1997 England season across all uh, first-class cricket for England and for Surrey, Graham Thorpe averaged 61.0610. That's as good as I've got. That's good. No, no, I'm with you there. That, that, I mean, if I'm thinking about the sort of the spirit animal of the 97 England team, I think it's just about – I mean, that era – if Graham Thorpe makes his debut what in 93 doesn't he and he goes through until the 2005 Ashes so he spanned that uncomfortable time in the relationship between England and Australia where they just couldn't win and obviously was omitted just before the 05 series where it all turned around so I think that's and, and yeah you could you could argue that 97 it doesn't get much worse than that because they did win the first test and it did slip away uh, and of course they did go on to win at the Oval when it was all over and it didn't mean an awful lot so yeah, I reckon that's as good a shout as any other. So thank you, Mel Shawley, for 610. Our next number, Adam, is an edited number. It comes in from Abhilash Singh, and that number is $3.92. What might 392 stir up in the deep recesses of your cricketing brain? Well, on paper, this doesn't look like much of a game, but you Google it and and people speak of this being a a hugely important game for Indian cricket where they uh, they beat New Zealand in a high-scoring one-day international in early 2009. So India made 392 for four. It's at Lancaster Park, which no longer a ground they can use, which I'll go into in a bit in Christchurch. But yeah, it's described on YouTube as one of the greatest games of all time. I thought that was a... A stretch, but I mean, Sachin makes 163 off 133 before retiring hurt. So there's a suggestion that he was kind of robbed of a double ton. Um, Yuvraj Singh explodes at the end, which is, I guess, uh, part of their their strategy leading up to 2011 that the big left hander could do exactly that. That was the day when Sachin committed Yuvraj Singh's birthday to memory. He was like, "Wow, yes, this guy, I am going to remember this guy's <laughs> birthday." What? A, what? How did how did he hurt himself? Why did he retire hurt? Oh, sorry, he hurt himself he hurt his ribs when um when pulling a six i mean I've, yeah i mean there's, there's a number of ways you can hurt your ribs that's that's one of them uh when he was trying to uh when he was popping someone over the boundary line he pulled up with a sore rib cage he wasn't going imagine to... imagine like breaking your own ribs because you're so good at cricket you're like i yeah. played a pull shot so savage that i injured myself and had to go off Yes, yes. There's, some, there's a whole other tangent I want to go down, but I won't because this is broadly a family show. Uh, New Zealand in reply are flying. Jesse Ryder, the pirate, along with uh, Brendan McCullum. At one stage, they're 166 for one in the 22nd over with Ryder making 105 of those. But once McCullum gets out, Ryder falls shortly thereafter for 105 and they end up getting bowled out for 334. So they fall, what is it, 58? Or is it 58? Yeah, 58 runs short of uh, India's 
392. But I, I, I just thought I'd mention as well, Jeff, that it's the last great game at Lancaster Park, which was a fantastic ground in Christchurch, which was rendered unusable after the earthquakes of 2011. Jeff, we were in Christchurch uh, on the f- five-year anniversary of the big one, which was uh, we were there for a, a test tour in February 2016, and we were able to spend some time with quite a few people, actually, uh, who experienced the, the awful events uh, of that day in February 2011. But yes, what it meant was one of the consequences was that uh, Lancaster Park is no more, and now games are played at Hagley Oval. But it did host a, a most exciting high scoring one day international in 2009 i like that as an answer i'm prepared to give that a tick abolash thing drop us a line on the patron dms and let us know also you mel or if anybody out there thinks they have a better idea and that we've missed something obvious drop us a dm drop us a tweet whatever and let us know if you want to play nerd pledge very easy patron.com slash the final word that's the address you get on there you make an account you decide what your number's going to be you decide how often you want it to come through we will see the number we will put it on the list and uh, it will come up on the show as it comes around through the list that never moves Uh, i mean it does move it moves in one direction but you know nobody nobody gets shuffled there's no preferential treatment i'll tell you what if danny minogue rocks up and says, I've got a nerd pledge number. Can you do it? Can you pop me in ahead of everything else? Like like with quarantine, you know, can I just go home to the farm on the Gold Coast? No, you can't, Danny. You can wait your turn like everybody else. What I like about the list at the moment is that it keeps regenerating by existing patrons changing their numbers. And we talked about this on Storytime two or three weeks ago, I think, but it does have a feel of the list that never ends as a result, not just through new Mm. pledges. We love new pledges, but those of you who've been with us for a while and want to shake it up and send us for another gallop around the yard, we enjoy that too. So uh, that's all available to you at patreon.com forward slash the final word. And as we mentioned at the start of the show in the Stuart McGill live show on the 12th of November... If you're one of our patrons, you are very welcome to come and join us on that night. That's where we'll be posting the show afterwards. The only way you'll be able to hear that interview is by um, being one of our patrons or or buying a ticket. We're effectively calling it a live show, um, even though we aren't able to necessarily do those in 2020. Uh, we're making the best of it. And yes, as a, an acknowledgement of our loyal patrons, we want you to be part of that. Moving right along, Jeff, I can't believe it's been however long we've been talking for now and we haven't got onto the Sheffield Shield because what a round of Sheffield Shield cricket it was. Two draws, yeah, but so much going on there in Adelaide. We'll start with the record-breaking game, shall we? So South Australia playing against Victoria at Glenelg, uh, the ground where... Is it a palindrome when the the, uh, the word is the same yes. spelt both ways? Yes, it is. Uh, Hannah wrote her boob Glenelg. They're the only ones I can think of off the top of my head. And Glenelg was the site of uh, Victoria's first game of their campaign, of course, missing the first couple due to uh, lockdown requirements and quarantine and so on. But they certainly looked like they were going to take their opportunity and, and secure full points. That wasn't the case on afternoon four, but plenty happened along the way. They bowled out South Australia for 200, and that was courtesy of young Will Sutherland, who picked up three for 26, and uh, Mitchell Perry, who on first-class debut, picked up a couple of wickets, as did uh, John Holland. But the real focus was uh, through day two and then on day three as well, 
Will Pekofsky and Marcus Harris. They put on 486. Now, Jeff, on Storytime last week, we talked about a 462-run partnership between David Hooks and Wayne Phillips in Adelaide in 1986, which was the highest partnership in Shield cricket then. It was overtaken by the War Brothers in 1990 at the Wacker when they added an unbeaten 464. But that, that record is now held by Will Pekofsky, and Marcus Harris, who made 255 not out and 239, respectively, in their opening partnership of 486. Spectacular. Well, the first thing I'll say is uh, what a bust. How desperately disappointing that they didn't even bother to break the first-class partnership record in Australia of 501 <laughs> between Aaron Finch and Ryan Carters. Call yourself cricketers, shit house. But, you know, I guess the highest shield partnership has, has some... Bit, little bit of value in there. Um, interesting that Will Pekoski, that was his pretty much his first shot as an opener and now apparently he should be the Australian test opener. Well, that was clever. That, that was really clever from Chris Rogers. I mean, Pekoski said that he thought he was going to be batting at number three in this team this year. And Rogers, new coach to the team, knows his way around a selection meeting, fair to say, Bucky. And he's sort of identified that in the Australian setup right now, they're sorted for middle order players. I mean, obviously, Smith... Sorted for ease and whiz. <laughs> sorted for ease and whiz, big time. Uh, Smith, you know, at Labuschagne, making tons of runs so far on the shield. Head, Wade as the incumbents, with Green there as well, who's basically banging the door down right now as an all-rounder. But Joe Burns, who started off slowly this year, didn't quite grasp the opportunity he had last year after making 97 in his first innings of the summer. That is the one spot that theoretically could change. So why not give Pekofsky the opportunity to make runs there? And, and that's exactly what he did. And, well, we'll see what happens next week in the in the next round of Shield cricket. But if he makes runs there again as an opener, it's going to be very hard to deny him an opportunity to make his debut. Can I also ask the question, is... Mitchell Perry, some sort of cyber-engineered perfect cricketer. <laughs> I Did thought about CA this too. build him in a lab <laughs> where they're like, all of our male cricketers are named Mitchell. Uh, our greatest composite part female cricketer is Perry. Let's put them together. Who turned 30 today, Elise Perry, I should I should say. Happy birthday, Elise. Former Happy guest birthday, of the final Elise. word. Let's send out a tweet. Let's, let's get on our final <laughs> word social media accounts and put up a happy birthday, Elise message. Send that out there. Oh, it'll, be our one, it'll, it'll be our one tweet. We'll send it from our Twitter account, our one tweet <laughs> to ever go up will be a happy birthday, Elise, in such We'll form. just do that each year. There'll just be a new happy birthday, Elise tweet. Let's do tweet it. every year. Um, <laughs> who's who's lost a top spot in the WBBL all-time runs chart by a couple to Beth Mooney, by the way. Beth overtook her during the last round of games. So that's that's going to be moving around all season. Everybody's fighting each other. Lanning and Villani are playing in the same team opening together and they're about 30 runs apart. Lanning's just gone past Healy. I tell you, it's carnage in there on that particular runs list. Anyway. Let's return to the two, the two blokes from Victoria, though, because, I mean, there's a lot here, isn't there, to take from it. First of all, Pekofsky, at age 22, has made two first-class double tons now, the other big one at the Wacker, a couple of seasons back. He's got five centuries and 21 starts, averaging in excess of 50. I mean, yes, well-documented issues that he's been on the front foot about, ruling himself out of selection consideration a couple of times uh, for the Australian team. He was in the squad, of course, two summers ago, but elected to take himself out of the squad on the same ground. So 
I, I suppose he's been through a bit without having played. I mean, I suppose the better way of interpreting it is there's been more focus on this one guy at his age than perhaps any cricketer I can remember without having actually played for Australia. So to go out there and, and take his opportunity, just brilliant. I'm, I was thinking about this earlier that when I sat down with him four years ago for the first proper sort of long form written feature that he'd you know, subjected himself to, if you like, I went back and read it. And my main takeaway there was that he was so mature as an 18 year old lad. I mean, he had so much going for him and he was so sort of at peace with what would be would be uh, as far as whether he would make it as a professional or not. He had backup options. He was studying arts at university. He was volunteering at a local school, just a really well put together young man. And I think that's held him in good stead uh, for the intense attention that, that's been around his game. But the fact is on the you know, in the middle, when he's got the bat in his hand, he continues to deliver as well. So he's put himself in a fabulous position. My frustration, you talk about the 501. I mean, I was looking slightly further afield. I thought uh, Will could go on and make a triple. Uh, and in the, in the end, I'm glad they didn't do that because Victoria fell two wickets short of taking full points. Uh, South Australia batted for 160 overs in the second innings, an entire five sessions and, and managed to get out with a draw. But yeah, 255 not out. When they declared, I'm like, oh no, just let him bat for half an hour more. He could he could notch a triple here. Uh, and then there's Marcus Harris, 239. Jeff, you know, had his opportunity on two occasions now in the, in the summer of 1819 against India and Sri Lanka and then again in the ashes of 2019 when they dropped Cameron Bancroft and, and on both occasions hasn't quite commanded an enduring uh, spot in the team. Had a modest season for Victoria in 1920. But again, he's a very capable player, got test experience and only 28 years of age. I was quite relieved that they didn't let Pekowski go on to try to make a triple. I, I thought had he done that, there would have been even more insane media attention and so on, and, and the pumping him up would have been even more disproportionate. And I just reckon you can you can disrupt a player of that sort of age by expecting too much from them too soon. And, and had he made a 300, that would have there'd be even more hyperinflation mm. in terms of the interest. Um, and then, yeah, as as for Harris, I c- uh, nobody who's heard the show before would be surprised that I've, I'm, I'm not convinced by Marcus Harris and never have been as a player at the absolute top level. He's obviously an excellent cricketer in the state competition, but he was very much exposed in England and... Those were challenging conditions, of course, but I just think it against top bowling at the top level, I'm not sure that he has what it takes. So if he proves that wrong, then more power to him. But I, I just reckon at this stage they'll be looking further afield before going back to him. I would have thought he'd be a, a last resort rather than a first one. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Because he, he did look like a player of serious promise in those four test matches against India. I mean, remember he finished off with an 80-odd at the SCG, which really should have been a tonny. It was the most fluent he looked all season. Made a couple of half centuries to start that run, which would have been his debut test, actually, at Adelaide. And you know, he did enough to look like he he had it, but then was left out uh, for the Ashes team initially, got back, and by that point of the series, I mean, um, you know, as you say, that the conditions were very challenging deeper into the summer. That, that Duke's ball hooping around and it didn't suit his game at all. But yeah, I suppose having struggled last year, I think that the consensus was largely what you're saying there, Jeff, that he was a long way back in the queue, but double time, you can't do much more than pile on the runs and, 
and there he is. And, and look, in, in many respects, it's the same story for Travis Head, who did lose his spot in England last year uh, uh, for Mitch Marsh in, in that oval test, but got his first opportunity at around the same time as Marcus Harris, and but did make that that test century at Canberra, did make one last year against New Zealand, and now he's made two first-class 150s back-to-back just when other players are sort of seemingly banging down the door. So last week it was Cameron Green and this week it was Will Pekofsky and indeed, I mean, not that he's going to be picked but Sean Marsh as well. Uh, and then Head walks out in the second innings with 160 overs to bat and, and goes on to make a 1-5-1 which ended up saving the game for South Australia. So you can say what you will about the, the contenders. If the incumbents keep making runs then they're not going to be overlooked. Also worth noting that our listener, Ned Hewitson, sent me a note while Travis Head was batting because he was on Bannerman watch there for a while. Travis Head was at about 60% of the runs at one point, <laughs> um, <laughs> which which got ruined later in uh, later on with players coming in down the order and, and batting for a long time. But you know, it's it's hard to make up the Bannerman from behind. You've got, to, you've got to be ahead of the 67% really at the start rather than trying to make it up where you've got to make three runs for every... One that someone else uh, makes. But, yeah, Scott Boland, big game for him. Uh, six for... And, I mean, Scott Boland's a player who's done so much for Victoria over the last couple of seasons. And, I mean, it was kind of knocking around in the Australian one-day team as, as a bit of a death-over specialist. But what he's doing now in, in first-class cricket is super impressive. Yeah, and it's not that long ago that he was called into the test squad. I mean, probably going back four years now, but he, um, he he's surely a better bowl. Th- but he's surely a better bowler than that now, simply having that seniority in the Victorian team. So yeah, six for sixty-one off thirty-three when desperately trying to bowl South Australia out uh, a second time. In the end, Jason Gillespie, who um, of course is the new coach of SA, I noted actually um, during the massive partnership between Harris and Bukowski that. It's the second time that Dizzy has had to endure a 400-plus partnership in the last couple of months because when he was uh, coach at Sussex, there was a 400-plus stand against him at Kent, but uh, then again this week at, at Glenelg. But in any case, he made the point that it takes some metal to bat for that long, having been in the field for in the way they were. It wasn't just the length of time that Victoria batted, but not taking a wicket for you know nearly a day and a half or whatever it turned out to be uh, when the openers were, were going so well. So for the second game in a row, South Australia get out of jail. Liam Scott helped them do that as well. We should mention the 19-year-old on debut made 61 from 162 balls in that sort of final afternoon vigil. So a record-breaking game at Glenelg, back in town or closer to the middle of the city at Karen Rolton Oval. And I should apologise, by the way, that my voice is just about gone now. Woody and I are passing a cold and back and forth to, our, to, each, to each other at the moment. I haven't got the Rona, but I, but I do have a, a relatively raspy voice. Uh, New South Wales and Queensland were playing at the Karen Rolton Oval, Jeff. And it started with uh, Marnus Labashame doing, as he does so often at the moment, posting three figures. But a, a note for those who are watching this closely, and many people got in touch, Mitchell Stark is a convert to the man-cat. He had the chance to man-cat and He didn't do it, but he said very clearly afterwards that he will. If players keep doing this, he, he, he will reconsider his position. I like that. And Marnus got a little bit shirty about it as well because, you know, he was he was using the argument that, like, oh, I wasn't out by much, which, you know, doesn't hold a lot of water <laughs> when, when you know, there aren't a lot of stumpings where they say, well, well, wasn't out by much. Maybe Ashton Agar in 2013, um, <laughs> Trent Bridge. But, yeah, it was it was nice to see one of the, the premier bowlers in the game, at least, at least showing a bit of... Uh, moral 
flexibility on that particular front. It ended up being an absolute belter of a game. The, the point there where Trent Copeland took five wickets for about one run or whatever it was, um, just going on a ridiculous burst through the middle when Queensland were batting the second time. And then, you know, New South Wales in that last innings where um, Trent Copeland wasn't able to do it with the bat, but they ended up nine wickets down and just getting home 206 for nine in one of those real sort of bum-tightening finishes, which you don't necessarily expect to see that kind of exciting cricket in the shield, but there you go. Oh, yeah, such an exciting game, wasn't it? So at one point, uh, Copeland had five for six in his 13th over in the Queensland second inning. So they conceded a 15-run first innings deficit to Queensland, who made 298. New South Wales responded with 283. So Schwepson takes five in the first innings, and then Queensland all out, all out for 190. That's principally due to Copeland. Five for 17 from 18 overs with 12 maidens was his final analysis. Um, so it's been a long time since Copeland has really been in contention for international selection and I'm not suggesting that he is now necessarily but he keeps doing it season after season and as you say Jeff chasing 206 it was a real scrap um, Schwepson picked up another five he's, it's the first time a, a Queensland leggy's taken 10 wickets since Trevor Hones was doing the job in the in the late 80s <laughs> Dan Breddig noted but that last hurrah there was a, a brilliant run out um, by Michael Nisa to get rid of Nathan Lyon at the non-strikers end which meant that Harry Conway had to face four deliveries from Lyon before Sean Abbott who ended up being the hero uh, managed to slog away the winning runs through the onside and and that was that so a good all-round performance from Abbott likewise Copeland uh, Labashane runs and then a tight finish New South Wales coming up trumps by one wicket uh, with uh, the non-out man yeah Sean Abbott on 18 but good story there for Mitchell Schwepson who a couple of times last year Jeff Looks like he was sort of taking the next step, certainly at the MCG against Victoria when he bowled them out on the final day. He's clearly the second spinner in Australia now. There's no real debate about who comes after line. That match seemed really important for him. You, you see spinners have those turning point games where as much as anything, it's just showing them that they can do it and, and proving to them that they can do it and proving to others around to take them seriously as well. And, you know, Mitch Swepson's a, a bowler who... like. I've watched him bowl in a few Shield games live in over the previous couple of years without necessarily thinking too much of it. But the way that he came along, the way that he was able to put that pressure on and, and late wickets came from him when it looked like New South Wales had a more comfortable route to victory. He was the one who made it such a tight finish, you know, to the point that they had Manus bowling at the other end just because leg spin was working so well. <laughs> like, get all the leg spinners on. We'll have all the leg spin in the world. That's exciting if that there is a, another spinner taking wickets, I suppose, because for a very long time in the Shield, it's basically been Steve O'Keefe and Daylight. And across the parklands there at Park 25, at WA Tasmania, a slightly higher scoring game, a draw, but again, a lot to take from it. So WA make 302. Sean Marsh. And Sean, Sean Marsh. Marsh makes Sean 115 Marsh. of them. <laughs> uh, yes, it's on. It's on. And he, went, with it, and he went within 12 runs of making twin tons. So to, just to skip yep. through the game a little bit here. So Tassie respond with 432. Matthew Wade, crucially, I say crucially because of what's going on around him, makes 83, batting at number three. Then in the second dig, WA go bananas and make 436 for five declared. Marsh making 88 from 74 balls after Whiteman and Bancroft both make centuries. 
innings. But um, yes, falling 12 runs short of what would have been twin tons for the first time in his career. What is he now, 37 years of age now, Jeff? I mean, you know, you've, you've posed the scenario before where he can return to the Australian test team. All it would take is a corona outbreak and he is the man in form. He's coming back. He's coming back. You can hear the whispering in the reeds, the wind through the marshes. It's saying, oh, you know, just a little, just a little injury. Oh, someone slips on the stairs and rolls an ankle. So someone slices their finger open, cutting an avocado. You know, so there's maybe just a little fender bender and someone's got a sore neck. You know, you just need five or six players to to get knocked out with injury and suddenly they'd say oh experience that counts uh, you know has made test runs before undeniably true has done that yep at times and he'd be back in I, I hope we see it I hope, I hope Watto makes a comeback I hope Sean Marsh makes a comeback I hope we get all the hits the thing with Sean Marsh is that for once in his career he's timed his run quite poorly in that if he'd made the runs he's made so far in the comp, which I wrote this down somewhere, so far he has, I think it's 350 runs. Yes, 350 at 88. If he did that in three games ordinarily, he'd be in. But it's because of players like Matthew Wade. We, we talked about Travis Head uh, batting well, not necessarily under pressure for his spot, but needing to make a statement in consecutive games. The same applied for Wade. We said on the show last week that after missing the first two Shield games, returning to the team, the Tasmanian captain and incumbent number six in the test team would need to make runs. 83 in the first innings, batting himself at three, which I liked. Then in the second innings, an unbeaten 57. So you, know, you can't ask for a, an awful lot more than that. So Tassie were 117 for two in their second innings as the game petered out to a draw. But yes, runs for Marsh, runs for Whiteman and Bancroft, who are both off the radar at the moment, of course. And again, they're from Matthew Wade. So Wade and Head, the, the two men in position, uh, it'll be hard for them to lose their spot. Oh, one other thing I should say, though, Jeff, from that is that they gave the new ball to Cameron Green in the second innings. So in the first innings... He was bowling for the first time since 2019, early 2019, where he did his back. Picks up Jordan Silk with an absolute snorter, which got people very excited indeed as a change bowler. Then in the second innings, knowing they only had 48 overs to send down, they gave him the new nut, and lo and behold, picked up Silk a second time in the match. So just bowled, I think he bowled 12 or 13 overs for the whole game, but the fact that Marsh threw the ball to Green to open the bowling just would suggest that those at WA headquarters know that there is a chance for this guy to get himself into the team as an all-rounder. Of course, he'd need to dislodge Wade, and it seems hard for him to do that for reasons that I mentioned before, but he has been picked in the, the white ball squads, even though it's not been on white ball form that he's made it in. It's not unusual for Australian cricketers to be blooded through the one-day or T20 sides, and he will be in the squad for the India T20s and one-days that are coming up in November. I reckon a fair bit of it just depends on the frontline bowlers and whether they need support and that's that's more likely to be in the third or fourth test but even then they've got longer breaks this year there's a there's a longer break between the boxing day test and the sydney test than usual the brisbane test pushing deep into the month and i think with four tests we we rarely see australia go with an all-rounder unless 
they feel the conditions merit it. You know, you've got to be playing on some pretty flat tracks. And usually to, to get through four test matches, they'd say four bowlers will be enough. Usually Mitchell Stark breaks down by the fourth test of a series, um, whatever it is. No, I mean, like historically, I'm not even being facetious. No, That's, no, yeah. He generally misses the fourth out of five or the fourth out of four. Um, it's happened so many times. So, you know, that's a possibility in which case they might then want an all-rounder and if they've got a less imposing bowler coming in to replace him. But then someone like Michael Neese is basically an all-rounder anyway. So at that point, well, do you need the extra bowling option? Yeah, this is it, isn't it? Because I think, well, Green, who made 37-7 and seven in this game, so didn't make big runs again. But the way he's being... I think it, had he made runs here, maybe he wouldn't have bowled in the second innings because they would have thought his case was strong enough as it is. But with Green, it, it, it's more geared around that he is good enough to be the number six right now. And the fact that he bowls is purely yeah. a bonus, isn't it? So Yes. And, and the bowling's come, not needed. He's got to make right. his case on batting. Yeah, that, that's right. And the fact that he's sharp and can take wickets is, is very helpful, probably longer term, which does leave us with that one spot. We've got one more round of Shield games that starts on Sunday before this block ends. So that's... Tasmania, New South Wales, South Australia, Queensland, Victoria, WA, who at the moment are top of the table, having uh, won one game and drawn a couple. But there's only been three games won so far. The rest have all been draws across the three rounds. But Joe Burns, I mean, the the pressure will transfer back onto him against South Australia, who, of course, have struggled so far um, this season. Yes, they've nabbed a couple of draws, but on the whole, their bowling hasn't been potent. Teams have racked up big scores against them. And and Burns will, will need to do that because if he doesn't, He'll be entering uh, calculations for test selection at the very time when there are a bunch of guys actually <laughs> in the runs. It's it's not a not a good place for him to be if he doesn't succeed. He week. will be on the highway to the danger zone. <laughs> That's where he'll be. All right, we'll be keeping an eye on that next week, of course, and we'll talk to Barat Sandarason when it's all over, who's been front and centre writing and talking about these games week in, week out. As you have, Jeff, at the Women's Big Bash League, slightly better results over the last couple of days. And by that, I mean fewer games interrupted by rain. But as predicted, um, we did lose a lot of cricket over the weekend in Sydney uh, thanks to those annoying storms. We lost plenty and we had Duckworth Lewis method um, results for quite a few others and we had a truly absurd moment at the Sydney Showgrounds where they, they had this triple header. They managed to get the first game in, that was fine. The second one was badly interrupted a couple of times and when it started raining in the chase, when they were four and a half overs into mm. a run chase the game was called off. Now, the Hobart Hurricanes were well on top at that point. They have been playing pretty horribly when they've had a chance to get on the field. But they've been given a revised target. They came out, they put Chloe Tryon up to open, who goes after the bowling. Um, They played well for the few overs they were in. They scored heavily and they were well on track to win on Duckworth Lewis. And then with three overs to go, they were taken off by the umpires. And I just, it was, the reasoning was that there was a third game to come that day and you couldn't let the pitch get too wet. But honestly, the difference that it would make in three deliveries that you could bowl in 90 seconds. And with the Brisbane Heat, you had Amelia Kerb playing up how wet the ball was and she had to dry it and she couldn't grip it and all the rest of it. But at that point, if you're an umpire, surely you just say, okay, the play acting does work bowl the ball bowl it three times and then we'll have a result like surely when you're that close to a result you use your discretion to get one it just gave me the shits yeah and when you look at this card as well i mean so the heat made 80 for two from their 11 in a rain reduced game and then the canes are 43 without loss from 4.3 over so well ahead of their dls target at that point with chloe trine and rachel priest doing the job it just looks ridiculous that 
the next game was washed out between the Sixers and the Stars, which just kind of rubbed salt in the wounds that the idea the pitch needed to be preserved for the next game when mm. clearly the, the storm was coming. But that's an unfortunate way to end that. The first game at the showgrounds on the Saturday, the Thunder accounted for the strikers in a high-scoring game. Heather Knight, 89 from 39 balls. I mean, we, we, I mean Heather Knight's a very experienced campaigner, uh, the England skipper. But over the last 12 months or so, she now hits big bombs. Do you remember that... Um those couple of games in Sydney in the 2017 Women's Ashes where Heather Knight suddenly started upping the scoring rate. Mm. Um, you and I were noticing it at the time and that's the side of the game that she's worked on. And it was it was a smart innings. You know, she did the classic T20 thing, took her time a bit, worked herself in, didn't go for anything too big and then towards the back end suddenly it was bang, bang, bang and they were away and, and it came down to... There'd been a pinch hitting over earlier from Sammy Joe Johnson, who did exactly what she used to do at the Brisbane Heat, went to the Thunder, got pushed up to number three um, when there was an early wicket and hit four sixes in and over off Amanda Wellington, who didn't bowl a bad over but just got absolutely pulverised and Sammy Joe was out soon afterwards, but the Sydney Thunder just went on from there. And mm. So, you know, Heather Knight had that boost behind her. She didn't need to worry about the run rate too much, got herself in and then just went for it. Yeah, yeah. So the the Thunder do the job uh, by 58 runs over the Strikers. Over in Dremoyne in the other game on Saturday, uh, the Scorchers beat the Renegades by 18 runs in another yucky rain-reduced game. 105 played, 62, but 62-1 because of when the rain arrived and, and all the rest of it, which is all a bit scrappy, but it was Devine and Mooney who did the job there for the Scorchers, the two imports over to Perth. And then moving to Sunday, the first game between uh, the Strikers and the Scorchers was washed out again. They got some play in. They got 10 overs in the Strikers and then in the Scorchers reply, down came the rain. The Thunder won on Duckworth-Lewis against the Heat. Another rain-reduced game there, Jeff. Very frustrating. Heather Knight took three for four in one over, actually, which was probably the, yeah. the turning point of that game. Uh, had If not for that, it would have changed uh, what was going on there in that five-over smash. Well, the, the Brisbane Heat were just appalling the way they went about that chase. They ended up at 30 for seven. Like, just brainless batting. They were frenzied. You know, they didn't have a, a plan. You know, they had a reduced target to go after, but they had no calm or common sense about how to do it. So, um, So they were pretty ordinary. And then, look, the Renegades have been ordinary in every game they've played. So the, probably the two worst teams this season have been Hobart Hurricanes and the Melbourne Renegades, but the Renegades have been the worst. I mean, they played – those two teams played off today and the Renegades got thumped comprehensively. They're, they're nowhere near it. They cannot score a run. They can't get above a run a ball. Their batting's just been woeful and it doesn't give their bowling anything to work with. Yeah, perhaps with the exception of Georgia Wareham, who's not known for her batting, but she made 54 not out of 27 balls in that game against the Sixers. The only sort of shining light in the innings mm. of 119 for seven, which the Sixers but, easily... But that was desperation batting. That was because she had to do it because yeah, the, yeah. their top order was dreadful, uh, was so slow, gave her nothing to work with. And by the end of the innings, she had to come in and tee off and you know she's good enough to clear the rope a few times. But it, it, it was a dreadful position to leave a, a younger player in. Yeah, and chasing just 120. Uh, the Sixers did that easy with Healy making half of that. 60, the opener, and uh, yeah, the, the final game of the round, if you like, before we came to the doubleheader uh, on Tuesday uh, was between uh, the Hurricanes and the Stars at Dremoyne. The Stars won by eight wickets after keeping the Hurricanes to just 89 for nine, which is so limp. Uh, Brunt took three for 17, Siver took three for 21, and that was job done, really, with Villani smacking 52 not out from 32 balls for the Stars for an easy eight-wicket win. Yeah, that was another horrible game. There have been a handful um, where there's been 
some sublime and some ridiculous, but that Hurricanes game, Villani got dropped a couple of times in that 50. Hurricanes fielding was awful. I mean, their batting was was just disastrous to be, you know, to be nine down, not even bowled out and, and not making 100. They were extremely poor. But the Melbourne Stars look pretty good. We, we're usually expecting them to be bad. You know, they've been an ordinary team for so long, but they've they've been washed out three times. But one of those games, they did get most of their innings in, batting, and looked good, made a, had, were on a decent score in 17 overs. And then, you know, the way that they won today, um, mm. they were chasing down a score, a big score set by the uh, Adelaide Strikers, and, and the way they won in that game you mentioned previously against the Hurricanes. So it, it's all been uh, Lanning and Villani for the most part making big runs, but their top order at least is working, which hasn't really happened in the past, landing aside. Well, that's clinical, their win today, isn't it, out at Blacktown? So the strikers make 154 for six, Wolvart 68 from 50, the South African import, and then the Stars do it with a couple of balls to spare. They win by seven wickets, landing 69 from 58, Villani 43 from 28, Mignon Dupria, uh, the other South African in that game, making 31 to finish the job. So the Stars ticking along nicely there. They're currently... Uh, where are they on the ladder? They're top of the table, actually, after five games now. So they've picked up seven points. They've admittedly had three no results, so that's helped along the way. But two wins and three games washed out. They're top of the table. And the other game today, also at Blacktown, was another stinker. You touched on it before, Jeff, but the Renegades making just 81, all out for 81 with Amy Satterthwaite. Top scoring with 20. Nick Carey took three wickets. Belinda Vacuera picked up two for 12. She's moved down to play for the Canes, who... Uh, knocked that off in just 12.3 overs thanks to Naomi Stallenberg who made 35 not out and Rachel Priest again in the runs with 34 so the Canes pick up what would be their first victory they've also had a couple of washouts so looking at the table we're not yet a third of the way through but the Stars, the Thunder, the Sixers and the Heat are in the top four There'll be a couple more games on Wednesday when this show's coming out and then another big weekend, four on the Saturday, four on the Sunday and hopefully uh, the weather's going to be better and we'll have more cricket to call. Uh, Jeff, before we sign off, a quick note uh, that CA had their AGM uh, during the week. Normally we'd spend a lot more time uh, talking about this on the final word. We certainly have in in recent years, but yeah, it's been quite a busy week. All I will note is that Dan Bredig probably did the best job of picking the bones out of the reporters. He tends to do on Crick Info. CA reported a $45 million deficit for 1920, which is not as big as the losses they reported in 1617. So when South Africa and Pakistan were here, uh, they lost $51 million. Now, of course, it's important to note that CA work on a four-year rolling cycle. So what it sort of drills down on is that, and you know, this is all mostly pre-corona because the, the 1920 annual report mostly takes in the 1920 summer and they got all of that away with the exception of a couple of games before um, the whole world stopped in March. So they were fortunate in that respect, but it does reinforce how important it is that this India series goes off without a hitch. Yeah, the India series is where the money comes from, although it was instructive to note over the last few years that when India were here in uh, 2018-19, it wasn't a huge earning summer. Like They they made money on it, but they didn't make an absolute mint on it. So it's not necessarily the case that just having India tour means the the rivers of gold flow in. So related to that is that they have done a lot of cost cutting um, to to try to make what money they make from India into a profit or, or into more of a profit, you know, given that things are likely to be 
more it's likely to be more expensive to stage cricket and there's likely to be less money coming in uh, over the next couple of years so you know the the big windfall events are when they have an ICC event so when they had the 2015 World Cup that summer they made a lot they're not having the T20 World Cup that they were supposed to have this summer that that did that's not going to happen it's not going to be next year either it's going to be two years away so mm. the the implications are pretty severe yeah and in terms of how they make their money Earl Eddings who's the the chair of CA really did emphasize that their model is underpinned by free-to-air television which in a way is encouraging given the the brouhaha with channel 7 in, in recent times I guess there's always kind of a, a back of the mind fear that they might move away from that model at some stage and take more cash from pay television operators or something like that but it's good to know that they still have uh, free-to-air television uh, first and foremost at the front of their mind although we do know that the times are a changing when it comes to streaming and so on but it'll be really interesting the next time that's renegotiated the key to that is that pay television doesn't have that much money anymore you know True. there's only one pay tv <laughs> option and their their financial models um in in pretty bad shape so you know the days of those massive broadcast contracts may be over but it, it was also an interesting sort of lack of understanding of it in a way that Earl Eddings on that call said we have to show our international games on on free-to-air because the anti-siphoning laws say that we have to but of course they're not doing that because all of their one-day matches and their t20 matches are not and that is contrary to the anti-siphoning laws. That should actually be illegal. It's just that the uh, the Minister for Arts and Culture or whatever the title is at the moment refused to intervene at the time to kibosh that deal, which which is illegal and shouldn't have been allowed to happen, but it was. Because, so you're telling you know, me you're telling me a cabinet minister in this current yeah. government would do some, yeah. would make would, would make a decision or a non-decision, as it were, that would be in the interest of the Murdoch Empire. It's, it's, I know, no. it's stunning. Absolutely, absolutely. No. Just, it just snucks you for six, doesn't it? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You're breaking my faith in democracy. I know. I, I am Isn't it interesting? We, 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 are, we, are, we are ending the show where we started it in many respects. That puts a nice full stop mm. on it, given we were talking about democracy uh, in the opening foray. It still is election day. We've been talking for a long time, but perhaps that's where we should sign off in noting that it's going to be a big 24 hours in the world. It's going to be a big week for a lot of our listeners going back into lockdown, as we have also touched on quite a bit. But yes, in closing, uh, our thanks again to Ebony Rainford-Brent, who is just, as we said before, just an inspiring individual, uh, and that's really come to the fore in 2020. And in everything that she's been doing uh, in her personal and professional life, uh, she's just a, a great human being, and we're proud that she's a friend of the final word. Jeff, we've said it a couple of times, but another final parting reminder that the patron uh, slash Zoom live show next week with Stuart McGill, 12th of November, uh, jump on the patron page, patron.com forward slash the final word to get your golden ticket to that. Alternatively, finalwordcricket.com, you can buy yourself a ticket. That's all in the show notes, as is the deal for our friends at Wisdom Cricket Monthly. If you want to pick up the magazine, bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. The show is edited every week by David Collins. Thank you to him. It's released on the Bad Producer Productions podcast label. If we haven't gone on for long enough, they have other shows that you can listen to (laughs) if you have other time that you need to fill in. Um, And aside from that, it is made possible by the people who listen and the people who subscribe. Love your guts. And we'll be back to talk to you again on the weekend. The world might be very different on Saturday. We'll see. Whatever happens... It'll be story time on the weekend. I'll still be Adam. He'll still be Jeff. We'll still be having fun. Talk soon. I had to go about-